Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 600 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia. And our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the region. My name is Anna Shepard, and this is the first episode in our new mini-series exploring the opportunities and challenges that come with businesses supporting LGBTI equality. Over the past few years, more and more companies have been engaging with LGBTI rights and equality, from putting inclusive employment policies in place, to celebrating pride, to speaking out in favor of LGBTI inclusive laws. This provides some great opportunities for activist organizations, but it's not all plain sailing. In this, the opening episode of our series on the private sector and LGBTI activism, we're looking at the rising opportunities and challenges. At ILGA Europe, we've experienced these firsthand as businesses have reached out to support our work with and on behalf of our member organizations. And here with me to discuss these developments from the ILGA Europe perspective is our executive director, Evelyn Paradis. We're also joined by Jens Schadendorf, economist, researcher, and author of the recent book, Game Changer, which provides an overview of the business arena engaging with LGBTI rights and inclusion and the impact of that both on communities and countries. Welcome both, and thank you for being part of The Frontline. Jens, I'll come to you first. There seems to have been a turning point about a decade ago when businesses started to become more engaged with LGBTI equality. What do you think the triggers for this were? Well, I think one major trigger um, is connected to the financial crisis 2008 and 9. And I think that was a very major turning point in many things in the global economy. This had also an impact of uh, a global perception on what is what is precious and what is uh, really worthwhile to, to, to fight for. And I think what uh, was a good for, for the LGBT plus um, movement was a good thing is that um, we had a new president in the US, Mr. Obama, and he sort of pushed with his administration a shift as well in perception in the UN. For instance, in 2013, which was, was a result of a development the years under Obama before, we saw this unprecedented campaign, which is called the Free and Equal Campaign which um, I think is very important to know because it sets the ground as well for engagement for as well global businesses, which then led under the roof of the Free and Equal Campaign to the development of the United Nations Standards of Conduct for Businesses. Uh, and people tend to forget that the Free and Equal Campaign, which of course is a human rights um, uh, issue, uh, is the umbrella for what is happening with respect in the business world. So, Uh, so this was in 2013, and the, so the triggers, so all the developments I'm also describing in my book are in some way connected to this year of 2013 and 14. And so I'll give you another example as well to stay in the global arena. So until 2013, uh, there was next to nothing in the World Economic Forum sphere. And uh, for many, of course, this is the big um, bad business, uh, but of course it's influential. And if we uh, want to understand how change comes about, of course you have to understand what is going on there. And until 2013, uh, there was nothing because there was a kind of a block. I mean, you, countries like Russia and Nigeria and Saudi Arabia and other forces as well, of course, in the Western world. But then it was interestingly a father 
uh, who then said, we have to change this. And this father was a major a global investor. So Paul Singer from the US, he has a gay son. And he said, we have to sort of spotlight this topic from a human rights perspective. Interesting. Although he was an, uh, or he is a global investor, he teamed with another investor, uh, Daniel Loeb, and they sort of created an event together with Microsoft and other guys in 2014 in January, so about the same time, and there were only human rights activists in this offsite event in Davos. And it was the talk of town in Davos in 2004. People tend to forget it's only eight years ago, not more. A turning point for the perception on the global arena for business leaders. And from then on, there was an increasing discussion and conversation uh, with the LGBT plus topic entering the center stage of global businesses within the frame of Davos. In another example, uh, this is the case of Barilla, so the Italian pasta company, which really sent a spotlight thing as well for uh, how how the young generation is perceiving LGBT plus um, uh, equality issues in general and uh, changed the perception and made a, a huge impact in the global uh, uh, view and made as well business leaders think about uh, LGBT equality differently. I think we were getting back to this point. Uh, so it was, a, you know, the global arena, role model lists, specific cases like the Barilla cases. And then finally, over the last, let's say, seven or eight years, we saw a mushrooming LGBT plus ecosystem um, members sort of dealing at the intersection of human rights and business interests. And that's, that's fascinating to see. We definitely want to hear more about the, uh, the the story of the Italian pasta company Barilla. Uh, but but first, um, you already touched a bit on how all of this is linked to a, a kind of wider shift towards you know, centering corporate social responsibility, um, not just about making profit, but focusing on on corporate citizenship. So what what are the arguments for businesses supporting LGBTI rights and equality? Uh, a major argument for for business as well is that is a growing pressure from the, the global public and especially from the younger generation to change how they do business. So let's see if you if you have a strong resistance again how to sort of um, produce products for instance ignoring climate and fifty percent of the young judges say well if you don't change we believe you we don't even join your company of course you have a a, a need to move so it's a basically. It's a bit uh, tough to say that, but also it's a, an economic rationale for many companies to shift from becoming a sh only shareholder value approaching a, a organization to a stakeholder approach. But we shouldn't be naive. Not everybody has become a good uh, human being and organization haven't become the good guys uh, in the global economy. It's because of pressure. And that's, again... Uh, analyze why it's so important to to either stay activist or to become activist and all what is related to human rights. And returning to the to the journey of Barilla, uh, could you tell us more about that and 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 what that journey tells us? Some of us may recall this sort of story, which happened again in in uh, in, in fall two thousand thirteen. So again, that time. And until then, let's remember how it was. Until then, uh, it was advantageous for, for companies perhaps to ignore the LGBT plus um, issue or perhaps showcase a bit that they're LGBT friendly. 
But there, what happened there was that globally there was a public outcry because of some uh, comments of Guido Barilla, so one of the, uh, the, uh, the heads and owners of the company. And uh, that's interesting because in many, in many ways, so of course, Barilla is a global brand. So this guy, the one of the owners, spoke up and he made some homophobic remarks. And there was a public outcry in social media. Actors spoke up, like Mia Farrow, for instance. And Dario for a Nobel Prize winner in Italy spoke up uh, because at that time we tend to forget this as well. 2013, 14, there was the time when we see that when we saw the first sort of uh, global strengths coming up with the social media and the power which was given to the young, young generation. And because then what happened then, uh, he came to understand, so Guido Bolle, that something has to be changed, especially his own mind has to be changed, but also the culture of his company has to be changed. And then he teamed with a major civil activist from the U.S., David Nixner, and arranged uh, to meet him, convince him that they would need uh, the help of David Nixner, and then sort of turn around of the LGBT equality um, journey within Barilla. And they succeeded. I have to, see, uh, I have to say, um, this is one of the most impressive stories I ever saw until today. So Barilla, given the sort of the structure of the company and uh, with a lot of blue-collar workers, and of course, it's a different way to just uh, um, do, um, for instance, awareness trainings with blue-collar workers in Turkey or in Italy or in Greece, where they have their factories. Um, so they really managed to do this uh, turnaround, got several awards, uh, as well engaged in CSR matters in many ways, and sort of one of, one of the major sponsors for Openly, which is an LGBT plus platform within the Thomson Reuters Foundation, which of course is very much as well active in human rights issues. So... Um, that's that's a very interesting story, and it was as well, as well a warning sign for companies if they are not sensitive and credible, they will be punished by the young, whatever function they are, as future employees, as as customers, and globally. Perhaps not in Saudi Arabia, but of course in the Western world and some some further parts. Evelyn, I'd, I'd like to come to you now um, to hear how this all resonates from a civil society perspective. Uh, could you describe Ilga Europe's journey engaging with the private sector? Yes, well, actually, it's quite fascinating to listen to, to Jans uh, tell the, the story of the past decade, because it, indeed, it We've experienced it from from the the other perspective of being in the civil society role. Um, I mean, Ilga Europe has been engaged on on issues around equality, diversity, non discrimination in the workplace for you know nearly twenty years, of course. Um, but but that has evolved quite significantly, and it does mirror what Jans uh, is describing. It, it did evolve quite significantly about 10 years ago. And it is indeed, you know, there was clearly um, a change in, in the overall global narrative and the overall global um, discussions around equality for LGBTI and the role of, of companies in the private sector and I remember vividly a case around Russia where a big company, a big furniture company that I won't necessarily name, was going through a, quite a difficult situation around the, the new laws around anti-propaganda that were just being adopted in, in Russia. And they were reaching out to quite a number of us because I think it was it was a moment of 
of recognizing the actual role and power they could have, but not quite knowing what to do with it. And the other piece that I do recognize very, very uh, strongly from what Jans is describing is is our work on, on diversity and inclusion 15 years ago, which was really working with companies as employers. Um, that was leading to a point from within, you know, from within workplaces where people were saying, well, this is great. We're making progress in terms of, you know, having better policies and practices so that we're inclusive. At the time, it would have been more of the LGB, not not quite yet on the T. But people were saying that's good that our workplaces are starting to be more inclusive and feel safer for everyone. However, why are we stopping within our walls? And, and what does that mean if we're not also engaging with our partners, our service providers? And what about our visibility uh, at public events, so typically Pride, etc.? So that was really, there was, there was that movement also coming from within in a growing number of, of workplaces. And I think for Ilga Europe, it was that moment about 10 years ago of, of recognizing it matters whether we like it or not. And there was huge discomfort, I think, around working with the private sector. And there still is to a large extent. But when you look at the, the influence, we can't deny the influence of private sector, whether it's large companies, whether they're small and medium businesses who we can't deny the influence that these actors have in changing our culture, in changing our practices, in using their voice, um, because they do have a space, they do have an influence in our media, they, they are heard, they are heard, and that's the other piece that has evolved quite significantly, they are heard by government officials in a way that many of us in civil society, and I guess it pains some of us to acknowledge that, <laughs> but they, they are heard and they have access to power in a way that we don't. And it's important that we think strategically about how we use those voices. Um, now, it clearly is a whole lot of work, as, as Jan said. <laughs> on one hand, we can't be naive, and on the other hand, we have to be active. And that's where Ilga Europe has invested most of our time in the last few years, is we need to build bridges. I guess many NGOs, many civil society actors, we have experience working with public authorities, with governments. That is something we've been doing for years, decades. Working with the private sector is a different it's a different activity. It's a, it's we have to understand each other, but we also have to make private sector, especially larger companies, understand the realities of civil society. And I think that's one of the places we're currently focusing on, um, because there's a whole lot that can go really right or really wrong. Uh, I mean, in Ilga Europe, we've had a few good examples of of good partnerships in the very last few years of of partnerships that are based on what I would say is real mutual respect and, and mutual understanding and an appreciation of um, uh, us being an equal partner to, to, the, to the company, even if they're you know, larger and more influential in many, uh, according to many factors than we are, uh, but also a desire to use their voices and to, to really hear what what is needed for LGBTI people and, and communities. And, and also a big thing is there's more and more companies who are actually willing to learn. Uh, the Barilla example is one of, of many, but, but they, there are more and more companies that actually are 
open and and accepting the critical <laughs> critical feedback they receive and and willing to really look at themselves but that's the beginning of the work i think because next to these companies next to these examples we've also had a few <laughs> uh less successful uh, engagement in recent years. Um, and those are many, which uh, there's still so much that many companies, whether they're big or small, so much that they don't understand about civil society, that there's a whole lot of uh, uh, assumption that we will provide our time, our expertise, our knowledge for free. And that is creating a very imbalanced relationship which will make it difficult in the long run. So there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of potential, which is why, um, which is why we're having this podcast, actually, and why we do the work, because really it is important that we engage strategically, but there's a lot of work ahead. Europe is a, is a very diverse region uh, in itself. Uh, we, we've already touched on uh, companies doing work in, in places like Italy, Turkey, Russia, um there there are places in our region where where companies are are afraid or actively discouraged from taking a stand on on lgbti rights and equality whereas in other places the uk for example companies have been very visible um about their support so so jens coming to you uh, what do you see are the challenges and opportunities for for businesses in the the european context specifically well, me being a European, of course, that's uh, very close to my heart, this question. So, for, for instance, uh, I'm living in Munich, but I have uh, lived in other countries for about nine years. Also, I've, I'm, I'm married to a Danish guy. And I, as, you, as you may know, I've, I've traveled on four continents from my book, including Russia, for instance. And of course, what is obvious is how different the cultures are. For instance, you were talking about the UK. Uh, and of course, we, 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 we all know, for instance, my hometown, home, home country, which is Germany, uh, that's a different way of approaching things. But if you go to France, and I know France as well uh, quite well, of course, you have as well a completely different take on, let's say, what is considered to be private and public. So, for instance, this term of authenticity or the two self and to being on stage and see what's my story. Of course, that's very American and it's very uh, UK and perhaps it's closer, a bit closer to the German culture than it is to the French culture, I would say. But nevertheless, we see as well, there's some change, but I think that's very important as well, if you strategize to, to look at these difference, not just between the so-called Western world and the so-called Eastern world within Europe, but also between the different countries. Uh, so you were talking, Evelyn, on, on your Scandinavian um, company. Of course, it's different. So now very often in Denmark and Scandinavia because of family reasons. And of course, it's a completely different way when you're traveling, approaching to people. And that's a different as well. The topic of LGBT plus equality is not a big issue because, for instance, in Denmark, it's not a real big issue. So uh, so companies are not doing so much for it. But I also that's because it's more integrated into daily life. So this being said, looking, for instance, as well, my recent experiences, because I'm actually working on a Slovak, a Polish and Hungarian edition of my book. And of course, uh, this is where the book process is even more needed. And I'm, look, I'm cutting it down here and then. I'm localizing, doing more interviews. That's interesting as well, because, um, and this perhaps describes the challenges you were talking about quite well. Even those who are interested to talk to me Usually, it takes a longer time to make an appointment. Usually, if there is a company involved, 
the approval processes are more challenging. Sometimes you as well have as well the, the effect of ghosting. I know that these people are interested in the topic, but of course there is a stronger anxiety or whatever resistance than finally opening up and talk. So it's, uh, it's of course, it reflects the different um, level of LGBT equality in the society and workplaces, but it also, again, mirrors a different way, a different culture for talking. So... Uh, of course, if we look, for instance, at these uh, very sort of very often highlighted company uh, countries like Poland and Hungary, I was glad to hear that there was this rule now uh, in, uh, against um, the sort of uh, attempts by Poland and Hungary to work against the rule of law uh, as a, a fixed point of the European Union. So last year I've been to to Budapest, uh, and of course when you travel through Hungary and the train, which I did, and you see then sort of the huge statements uh, about the LGBTS ideology. It's not theoretical. You see this very in practice. This is very disturbing. On the other hand, I had conversation in Budapest with a woman from Kazakhstan. She, ident she identifies as non-binary. She said, it's wonderful here in Budapest. I love to be in Budapest. I don't want to go back to, to Kazakhstan. And that's a very simple statement because in Budapest as well, there's a quite active LGBT life. Uh, of course, it's not as prominent as in London and Paris, but if we recall in London, it wasn't been, hasn't been the case now 25 years ago. And if we look then again, and that was pointing to the core of your question, these countries, so the Eastern European countries, um, although, of course, there's still a lot of work to do in, in France and Belgium and, 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 and as well the UK in some parts, and Germany and, and what we call the Western Europe, if you look at Eastern Europe or Central and Eastern Europe, I think that you have to strategize in a way which is very culturally adapted. But there is also hope uh, in many ways. Let's, for instance, take the, the example of Slovakia. So uh, there will be an addition. So the translation is almost done. I even found a sponsor for, who pays for the transnet from the corporate world, a Slovak company. The CEO is gay. It's just that the company is growing. They are sponsoring the Bratislava Pride, Kuzici Pride, the three major prides in Slovakia. It's a small country, very close to the Russian border. So, so there is hope. There are, there are activists at many levels. We have a shifting global landscape there. So there are challenges, yes, that there are also hotspots of activities already now, which are working in favor of more LGBT equality in the civil society, but also in the corporate world. Evelyn, coming to you now with the with a similar question uh, from the, the, the perspective of the LGBTI movement in the region. Uh, what are what are some of the concerns that you've heard from from our membership and LGBTI activists across the region? I think we've heard many concerns over the years. And if I am to sum it up, I, I can sum it up in two things. The first one is what we often say is pinkwashing. And the second one is the issue of accountability. So pinkwashing is something that many of us are familiar with. It is like all of these companies that have seen the, the value and interest and benefits in appearing to be LGBTI equality supporters, but without doing the work, without any meaningful engagement. Uh, it's sometimes like paying lip service in terms of its, its very superficial support. And more, even more concerning, it's often to hide less favorable aspects of their 
of their businesses. So, you know, the, the, the favorable image around LGBTI compensates for less favorable issues within, within their own workings. And, and that's something that we have to all figure out as LGBTI activists and organizations, how we deal with that, because in order to, we are often uh, put in a very weak position or vulnerable position to be able to a recognize when there is real pinkwashing uh also for many groups if you're offered the possibility of having access to resources or funding or support when you need it but it comes at you know balancing the the risks that comes with it like it many many organizations and groups are put in a vulnerable place so there is a, a responsibility for us collectively to address the pinkwashing and to create I want to say almost like standards and practices and criteria that we all abide by and and hold. And so I get to the other pieces, like how do we hold companies accountable? Um, again, I was referring earlier to our you know long term experience of working with governments and institutions. We have like very few governments are you know good enough from from our perspective. But we know how to hold governments accountable. We have tools. We have institutions. We have human rights standards, we have courts, we have, we know how to hold governments and public authorities accountable. We're not there yet in terms of knowing how to hold companies accountable, aside from possibly public shaming uh, and, you know, working on the, on the, the image of a company. But again, very few organizations will have the means to go out and, you know, to, to do something about that. So like, this is where the work that has been, Jens was mentioning the work that is happening at the UN level in terms of creating standards that is all going in the right direction, but, but we still have very few of those tools. So those are the critical points, I think, from many, many LGBTI activists, because at the same time, we go back to the point, I think more and more in the movement also understand the real opportunity of getting private sector engaged. So it is, those are two big questions that we're, I think many of us, more and more of us are working on to figure out how we get solid enough on this so that we can get to an engagement that makes sense. And I think the end, the other last strategic question that I'm hearing a lot, uh, as Jan said, it's like, how do we get to create this critical mass of companies that are no longer afraid to take the public step and the more difficult step of, you know, engaging politically. Because I think that is possibly an attention that will always be there is that ultimately businesses are there to make profit. And um, that we will never change. And I think that's a piece we have to accept as civil society. But we have to make it, we have to create this environment, this climate, this overall push that is saying it is to your benefit to work with the Hungarian organizations against all these measures because it doesn't benefit you if if a society is like that. It doesn't benefit you if you don't engage in Russia, in Georgia, in Romania, wherever because because you need you will only thrive i think that's the narrative that mm. needs to be picked up you will only thrive if societies are more equal and free and fair may i may i uh, respond here or add something uh, so taking as well on the uh, notion of of pink washing so uh, very often when i'm invited to to universities or to to corporates people would then ask me what do you think about pink washing i'd say wonderful I think, wonderful. And let's think back 10, 10 years ago, the term didn't even exist. 
the fact is such, that's my argument here, the fact is such that we are talking about pinkwashing and blame companies and organizations to pinkwash reflects a very encouraging development. Because now uh, companies feel obliged to at least pretend to be LGBT-friendly. And of course, there are some they do that do. You're absolutely right, uh, Evelyn, that of course there is a lot of pinkwashing out. But on the other hand, there are many companies as well who really take the, the job on seriously. And I think the first group, so those who are only pretending, they are under pressure. So I think uh, that's a kind of a dialectic uh, approach here. I say, well, that's, don't blame pinkwashing. It's good that we are talking about pinkwashing. We should be grateful that we talk about pinkwashing. But it's like an anchor for, for our discussion. But also we should move uh, beyond that, I think. <laughs> it's because just stuck and, oh, they only pretend and, well, well they, they don't really do the homework at home. So uh, in the company and, and in terms of taking respons- responsibility for society and um, they only do as if there is a narrative. So you're mentioning the narrative. So, so that's one thing. The other thing, accountability. Of course, there are some tools of, uh, we can use. We have indexes. We have the Human Rights uh, Campaign uh, Index, the Corporate Equality Index in the U.S., which, of course, is based on, on self-reporting, but nevertheless has a kind of um, reputation as well to be quite uh, credible. We have as well some uh, indexes uh, in, in the U.K., Stonewall, for instance. We have uh, other ones, um, meanwhile, in other, in, in other countries. Um, we now as well, I've been in South Africa. We even have an index in South Africa. We have an index in India. They have teamed with a stone wall. So you can say, oh, well, that's bad because people then the companies only pretend and make the right cross and so forth. But there's some investigation. And there's also, this is part of the growing pressure on companies to do something and to invest, to take money in their hands and invest to, to participate in these, uh, these index and also to market their index. So it's just, you know, even if they only pretend to, to be LGBT friendly, they sort of contribute to the narrative that it's good. The, 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 I think the picture is more complex and it's, it doesn't help to just blame them. You know, it's ironically, even if they only pretend, they nourish um, and feed the narrative. So uh, I think that we should not forget that. Uh, and the other thing is, as I was saying, if we uh, think about uh, accountability, of, of course, is again twofold. One is what is done within the company and what is done with respect to society. Of course, the old thinking about companies is like to be a closed system. But of course, this has always been rubbish, nonsense. There's always a connection. There are fathers and mothers and, and they, are, they, are, uh, they are consumers and there, there, there's a multiple connections between companies, but also to, um, to members uh, who are active in the civil societies. So uh, I think what is very encouraging that sort of the um, basic argument is for more LGBT, uh, D&I and CSR related work in companies. The basic narrative is what is good for business? So with respect to the private sector, what is good for business? Good for business is a culture where uh, information and communication can flow freely. This means... Do something for your corporate culture to enable this openness and this welcoming corporate culture. 
in order to get in the best talent, it should be open to everybody, not only for LGBT plus people, but also irrespective of gender, uh, race, etc., etc. So this is the basic narrative. No global company really can exclude from this narrative or pretend to be not part of this narrative is that the um, companies have really become as well corporate citizens, like, for instance, in France, the Fondation Le Le Refuge, supporting LGBT plus uh, youth in danger. So this opening that they are sort of required to promise internally has also led to a kind of openness vis-a-vis the society. And that's, I think, is a very good uh, uh, development. Although, of course, Evelyn, I fully agree with you that the topic is important of accountability. That's very important. It stays important. I think this is wonderful how we're we're actually exchanging between between our perspectives because we're actually just pointing to the depth of nuances that are needed in this conversation, which is exactly what I think hasn't happened enough yet. As Jan said, I mean, I think we tend to just um, see you know an issue like pink washing in an over simplistic way, like many others. And so we do need to be engaging. And and I think my perspective from LG Europe is what one thing that is going to be needed is that we equip LGBTI organizations and activists to be doing this, because we have to remember that with the exceptions of the Stonewalls, very few organizations in Europe have currently the resources and the capacities to engage also in that discussion uh, when they're, you know, overburdened with many other things. So that is, for me, the strategic question for mm-hmm. for all, everyone in the movement and our allies is like, how are we also allowing ourselves and giving us the space and the tools and the need to engage in this complicated uh, conversation that has so much opportunities in it? So we, we started this uh, conversation uh, by talking about the, the history of how, what, what, what were the triggers and, and how the, the landscape has evolved and how we got to this point where we are now. So just to, to end maybe by looking a bit into the future, uh, if you could both briefly say, you know, where do you see the direction of travel for businesses engaging with, with LGBTI uh, rights and equality? And what would you like to see? from the business community? So, of course, we are living in complex times, or complexity, the word we have used several times already in this conversation. And of course, now given the recent developments in in Russia and Ukraine and other parts of the world, I think we should not forget that there are things happening around us that may have an impact as well on the the fight for LGBT plus equality. I think that's, that's relevant in some way. For instance, in Russia, and you know that Russia is for, for the situation in Russia for LGBT plus people, of course, is not getting better through this um, through this war. There will be a stronger disconnection as well between the developments, the global development in Russia, and we see this already in Hungary in some way. So this is, uh, I think, we should look at more in some way, and perhaps you, you know this model which has once been developed, distinguishing the between three different ways of corporates, the private sector, to engage for LGBT plus equality. So the one in Rome model, for instance, the embassy model, and the advocate model. model. So the advocate model, of course, is the model where you sort of then also engage in the societies you are in. So for instance, um, Accenture or SAP in Russia. 
But of course, imagine the situation we're actually in. There is very limited, already limited possibilities to engage there. And this will be decreasing. We see the authoritarian power rising in the world. We should not forget that, of course, an LGBT equality is very much connected to this idea of uh, human rights. And also we say it's a human right. Of course, there is a lot of Western thinking in it. So uh, we shouldn't be naive here. So there is a growing challenge in this part of the world, I think, where you see this growing um, uh, force of authoritarian rule, excluding the rights of minorities in general. That's one thing I think as well corporates and the private sector, but also civil societies have to cope with in the future. And more than, let's say, in the last decade, for sure. One thing. The other thing is we see the rise of another acronym. So LGBT plus, or LGBTI, or LGBTQI, or IQ and A, these are acronyms. And of course, there have been many discussions around whether these are good for communication, but that's another thing. There's another acronym, which is not ESG. So, uh, and this, this points as well again, and there's a growing, a very much uh, an industry growing around this topic of ESG. So, so the um, growing demand uh, on the corporate world to report on our environmental, social, and governance issues. And so far, the reporting, as such, you can say that's good, but there's also a lot of criticism around this, like around the indexes we, were, we have been talking about. But of course, in a growing scope, because there's more money around it. If you see, for instance, using <clears throat> large investment firms like uh, BlackRock and others, how they sort of change the investment streams in accord into some uh, figures related to ESG or just the E, not the S and not the G. So I see that as well in terms of resources and budgets in corporates, but also beyond with respect to the civil societies organization, there may be a challenge because there, uh, the, um, the funding may be distracted, let me set that way, or maybe changed with respect to another bucket, which is now called ESG. And sometimes, and I'm not sure whether I really like this concept of ESG so far, I don't like it. Uh, because it puts so many things in one bucket, which in a way is good because it doesn't isolate the things not so much anymore. On the other hand, uh, everything is now summarized under the uh, ESG and the E is the dominating. The S, where the D and I and equality could be put into, is kind of, where is it? Uh, so there is a tendency, I think, also there's a danger, let me put that way. There's a danger that in uh, in the cause of a growing importance and all the money which is connected to ESG and all the, the challenges around reporting around ESG, this will take some attention away from the LGBTI uh, endeavors to be made in the future in Europe, but also in the world. But again, I think you can also take another view and say, well, um, we now have a self-sustaining network uh, or ecosystem of LGBT plus organizations, civil societies and companies engaging with it. If you look at from that point, uh, self-sustaining, uh, which means there is so much commitment already out and also there's money out. And you can also say that ESG is another opportunity to push forward this, uh, this development. From a strategic point of view, I think um, this is also a chance uh, so this, it's a younger development, and since there's a lot of money in it, perhaps it's also possible to use this money as well for to to redirect it to uh, the LGBT plus uh, um, movement in whatever. Evelyn, would you like to conclude? Yes. Well, 
I want to be hopeful, actually, because there's a lot of things that can continue to go right. And I want to be hopeful because one thing that we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic is, I think, a, a new awareness uh, mm-hmm. within the private sector of the role that they play in societies. I think a growing and somewhat new awareness of how different issues are connected. So it's to the point of um, what Jans was saying. And I think understanding both from within as employers, but also outside, there are more questions coming up in terms of how you are a good employer for LGBTI people, but also other people who will experience discrimination because of aspects of their identities. And, and so I'm seeing a reflection that wasn't there two years ago. So I want to believe that there's a huge potential there and it's, it's for all of us to steer it in the right direction. And, and I also want to believe that because I think the attention on LGBTI equality has been quite big, uh, even for a short amount of time, but quite big in the past five to eight years, that actually there is almost like an opportunity for LGBTI allies and LGBTI people in companies to be leading that conversation. So I, I'm, I'm going to choose to not be pessimistic about the LGBTI issues being uh, forgotten. I actually think there's a potential there for the issues to lead and also to lead the, the broader equality conversations in, in companies and bring other people along. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm too, like, that's my wish. That's my wish and that's my hope for the near future. Well, this is a positive note to end on. Thank you both for a very interesting conversation. You've been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. To find out more about Jens Schadendorf and order his book, Game Changer, visit the links in our episode description. And please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more we hear from you, the more activists will gain from our work at ILGA Europe to build a strong and resilient movement for positive change in LGBTI people's lives. Tune in next time when we'll be traveling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.